We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a well-known for his expertise in many resource sectors, including agriculture, alternative energy, forestry, oil and gas, mining, and water. He is founder of Sprott U.S. Holdings, which he later merged into Sprott Incorporated in 2011. Please welcome to the show, Rick Rule. Rick, how are you? Fine, Mikkel. Thank you for that kind introduction. I'm looking forward to this one. Now, Rick, I have heard you present and speak on podcasts for many, many years, so I'm not really sure where to start on this one. Maybe we'll do a really quick intro from your side, because in traditional expat money format, we always ask, you know, how did you get started in things like this? But you have such a, a career here. So we'll uh, leave this one to you. I've been involved in the finance industry, mostly around natural resources, internationally, for 49 years. I expatriated from the United States, not for the normal reasons, but rather to attend the University of British Columbia in Canada, which had a degree program in natural resource finance. And I've been principally involved in that activity ever since. The nature of natural resource investing means that I have been an international investor for that whole time. You go where the resources are, you go where the money is too, which means I well, I guess your show has a lot of experienced international investors, but I'm let's just say much less ethnocentric than most people in the finance trade. Sure. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Now, do you think or do you feel like we're seeing a huge renaissance in this sector? Because it kind of seemed like things went slow, at least from a layman's perspective. It went kind of slow or sideways for a little while. But now every time I turn around, that's all people are asking questions about are the energy sector, the agriculture, the resources, the mining, like that's center stage, everything, every conversation. I would suggest to you that the last boom time for capital investments in extractive industries was the period 1970 to 1984. We had a brief boomlet in 2000 to 2008. But I would suggest to you that humankind has been underinvesting in productive capacity around natural resources for 40 years. And there is a coming realization that the chickens are coming home to roost. Natural resource-based businesses, for the most part, are extractive, which is to say they're depleting. If you look, as an example, at the copper business today, the average copper mine sadly looks like me, uh, 70 years of age and past its prime. Bingham Canyon in the United States, 160 years old. Chuki Kamata in Chile, 120 years old. Hell, the newcomers, Escondida and Grassberger, 40 and 50 years old, respectively. You don't stand on the lip of the mine and throw in water and fertilizer and have them make more copper. You got to go find new mines. You have to endure what can often be a 20-year permitting regime. And investors around the world are coming to understand that with just the normal growth in human activity, that we are going to face broad-based supply shortages in industrial materials within five years, absent a recession. On the other side, with regards to precious metals, we are, as an economic whole, coming off probably the most benign 40 years in human existence. Gold does well during periods of fear. And the truth is that we haven't had much to be afraid of for the last 40 years. I'm going to suggest to you that that's led us to be complacent, and complacency itself should be the author of fear. 40 years of declining interest rates is over. 40 years of at least fake globalization, the increase in global trade and economic freedom is over. 40 years of peace, one could argue, is beginning to be over. And the reassertion of global geopolitical blocks that have conflict with each other, not least of which over resources, is over too. The consequence of that is that people's interest in gold is increasing because people's trust in each other and their governments is decreasing. So we have a circumstance where, for the first time in my career since the 1970s, the narrative around both natural resources as a whole and precious metals too 
is simultaneously attracting more rather than fewer participants. It's an interesting one for me that you highlight 40 years. I hit my 40th birthday this March. So I, I guess in this regard, I am as green as anybody in the world because I was probably just starting my first couple of breaths when we were rolling down or the bull market of last time was kind of coming to a close. Now, you did mention that there was a small blip in that where things went up. And for me, that was a massive deal. I remember going through that and reading about it and watching it. And I did not have as much money to invest then as I did now. So I kind of got in at wrong times. But it is, I think, a sentiment that probably a lot of people will share in that even if they have had experience with this in their life, it was quite a while ago and probably don't know how to view things or look at things right now. I think that's accurate. And I think that some of the similarities around that mini bull market and today are evident. I would argue that that mini bull market was driven by two things, the systemic underinvestment in natural resources, which has continued, maybe three things. And the fact that the prices for industrial commodities and precious metals were simply unsustainably low. But the principal driver was the urbanization of China. Deng Xiaoping saying, to be rich is glorious. The idea that markets could lift the fortunes of humanity. And the Chinese did a fantastic thing, not be becoming free, but by becoming more free. They lifted 450 million people from rural penury to at least a lower middle class existence. 400 million people, Miguel, wanted to live like you, wanted to live like me, but didn't have the means. When they got the means and they began to compete with us for the necessary building blocks of material improvement, the prices went up because there were more buyers than sellers. We are beginning, I think, to see this process repeated other places, India, Indonesia, Bolivia, circumstances where the poorest of the poor are increasing their material living standards rather rapidly. I'm not suggesting to you by the way that they aren't still desperately poor or that there isn't more work to be done. But the truth is that one of the unsung glories of our species is the amount of improvement that we have affected for the poorest of the poor worldwide in the last 40 years. And I think that has room to continue. There's a billion people on earth that have no access to primary electricity. There's 2 billion people on earth who have access to only intermittent or unaffordable electricity. My belief is that in my lifetime, I'm 70, that that problem will be largely addressed. That'll mean that there will be increased demand for all kinds of the material building blocks of humankind, to the betterment, by the way, of all. So how many of the four things did we count in that? Because we didn't go through them one by one. Well, I, I would suggest that the most important was the one that we did last, which is to say the improvement in the material living standards enjoyed in particular by rural Chinese. But you'll note that we talked about the underinvestment at the beginning, which is to say we had underinvested in extractive commodities for a long time and the prices were unsustainably low. I would argue that the last thing that led to that bull market was the increasing internationalization and specialization of trade, which is to say countries that were particularly good at something, China as an example, with applied fairly low-cost labor. But that sort of specialization and trade allowed everybody in the world to become richer and allowed people who aspired to have higher living standards to in fact achieve them which meant that there was more commodities for the stuff of humankind. It's important to note, too, although it was a fairly dramatic event, that by the standards of the 1970s, which probably will never be repeated, that it wasn't really dramatic from a historic perspective. I think people who have grown up in sensible businesses, retail businesses or finance businesses or consumer businesses, aren't familiar with the quantum moves that occur in capital-intensive cyclical businesses. And so in as an example, in that the market 2000 to 2010, the gold price rose from an admittedly oversold $250 an ounce to $1,800 an ounce. <laughs> the oil price advanced from, what, $15 a barrel to $120 a barrel. 
it doesn't take an awfully large imbalance between supply and demand to keep prices up or down very dramatically because these businesses are capital intensive and they're cyclical. When you flip on the demand switch and you increase prices, there's a, a lag time between the period where the market sends the pricing signal and the period of time where the industry can deliver supply increases. It's important that people understand the inherent leverage up and down available in capital-intensive cyclical businesses. It's important, too, and I'm sorry to answer this question at some length, but it's important, too, to understand that there's a, a utility leverage as well. Let's look as an example at Platinum Group Metals. It takes about $125 worth of platinum to outfit a catalytic converter that allows a car to be sold for forty dollars or $50,000 or $100,000. If you assume that voters around the world don't want more smog, that they're going to continue to exist on, insist on catalytic converters in all countries, a doubling of the price of, of platinum has absolutely no impact on the finished price of the car. So a, situ a situation can occur in things like oil and gas or platinum or copper, where fairly large increases in supply don't have an immediate impact on demand because the utility of the product, which is fabricated from the natural resource, is so high that the natural resource as a component in the price is fairly low. So there's a lot of near-term price elasticity, something that you don't see in other businesses. Okay, that absolutely makes sense. And I had never thought about it that way. But absolutely, the movement on the price of a vehicle is not going to change with one small piece. What about other pieces of the manufacturing process and the costs that are going up for the raw materials for those? Well, certainly what happens over time is, as an example, if the copper price were to triple, manufacturers would have an incentive to alter their fabrication techniques and substitute other materials for copper. But this can take a decade. <laughs> sure. And during the decade, while it takes place, uh, people who had the good sense to be invested in copper when nobody wanted it do extraordinarily well. Resources are a very odd sector. Uh, often, when they sell at very low price earnings ratios, they're actually expensive because the earnings are a consequence of overheated markets. Often, during a period where price earnings ratios are very high, and the industry seems expensive to conventional investors, the industry is cheap because the earnings are low as a consequence of depressed materials prices. It's odd the way that the industry sends perverse signals to investors who are schooled in other industries. Let's make it real easy. Let's say that three years ago, copper was selling at $2 a pound or $1.80 a pound. Because the copper price was so low, copper companies weren't earning much money. They were selling at price earnings ratios that were very high because they didn't have very many earnings. Okay. But then why does that make the purchase of the stock price actually expensive? Wouldn't that still, wouldn't that be the time that you would want to buy in on them? No, uh, you don't want to buy it during periods of low price earnings ratios where the low price earnings ratio was driven by low commodity prices. If you have a circumstance like copper was three years ago, where the copper price was so low that there was no incentive to increase production and where the low prices incented consumption, it was pretty obvious that the copper price would have to rise from a buck 80 to $4. At $4, it's not necessarily certain that in the near term, the copper price has to go up. But the doubling of the copper price has tripled or quadrupled the earnings of copper companies. So the copper companies now are selling at low price earnings multiples, driven, in fact, by higher copper prices. The perversion is that high prices are the cure for high prices and low prices are the, are the cure for low prices. So the market sends exactly the wrong signal at exactly the right time. If you understand that, and I've spent 50 years coming to understand it, it's a blessing. If you try to analyze natural resource companies the same way that you would supermarkets or auto manufacturers, you will lose all your money. Or tech companies, which seems to be most people's background over the last 10 to 20 years of investing experience. I would argue, based on a bit of personal experience, that most of the people who regard themselves as expert in technology aren't. They buy into the narrative rather than understanding very much about the business. I was born in San Jose, California, downtown Silicon Valley. And I had the good fortune to know uh, then and now 
people who were very successful in technology. But you have to have very, very, very deep knowledge to really understand technology that's efficacious. For that reason, I've chosen to avoid technology businesses. I can be successful in businesses as simple as brick manufacturing or copper mining or oil and gas extraction, where I would likely be much less successful trying to analyze a new algorithm that had an 18-month product life before some newer, more efficient algorithm came to pass. I'm not saying, by the way, not to invest in technology. I'm trying to say that if you've been a successful technology investor, try and analyze why you have been successful and try and figure out whether the wind has been in your sails or you're actually competitive in technology. I would agree with those statements 100%. I would also not push back because you didn't explicitly say it, but it almost sounded like it's more complicated to invest in technology sectors. With the resource sector, for me, one of the biggest pieces of it, or what I would assume would be the geopolitical aspect of it, which is about as complex as you could possibly get. Yes. And I think that one of the things that you need to do in either sector is understand that if you're an active investor, you're going to be wrong from time to time. (laughs) And you have to be able to tolerate that. I have myself always assumed that politics everywhere is bad, that any government is a risk to me, that the government that's the greatest risk to me is the one that's closest to me. So in terms of political risk, I'm mostly afraid of American political risk because I live in the United States and I'm active in the United States. It's odd that when I look at the actual losses that I have suffered personally because of political risk, that my greatest political risk occurred in the People's Republic of California, where we had a permitting impasse that lasted 13 years. By contrast, the best country in the world for me has been Chile. And on a money-in, money-out basis, the best country in my portfolio has been Congo, where I've endured AIDS, Ebola, civil war, (laughs) but where the price of entry relative to the resources involved was very, very, very low. Now, I've been stung with this. Don't get me wrong. I was a successful investor for 22 years in Russia. That came to a screeching halt two years ago. Absolutely. Now, on the note of of the Congo, that's very interesting because I was actually in Uganda and tried to cross the border into the Congo and basically was not allowed. They would not not allow us to go over there. But from my understanding of not being um, actually have visited, but reading lots about it, that's about one of the most messed up places on planet Earth. It's a hard place. By the way, had you had the right information and some euros or West African francs or U.S. dollars, you could have affected that border crossing informally fairly easily. I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily in your interest to break Ugandan or Congolese law. I'm trying to say that uh, tariff collection in Congo is personal and informal. Sure, sure. A lot of those things can be settled in person opposed to in the office. Yes, yes, yes. That's correct. Amazing. Speak slowly and smile. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, so many places I could take this conversation, Rick. My goodness. All right. So we kind of left off on the end of the last bull market. And then 40 years besides a small blip in not as much happening. What do you see now? Things are changing, I would say. Your listener base will need to ask themselves whether a recession is in the offing. If so, when would it likely occur and how deep it will be? If we don't see a recession, if we enjoy another five years of reduced but positive economic growth, you will see broad-based shortages in supply of a range of industrial materials, a broad range of industrial materials, copper as an example, oil as an example, certainly uranium as an example, cobalt, a broad range of industrial materials. You can have a circumstance where you have a supply shortfall in a recession where there's a demand shortfall and prices don't go up. (laughs) If you match supply and demand by reducing supply and reducing demand, Pricing levels don't need to change. If, however, demand continues unabated, doesn't need to grow, but just continues unabated, we face inevitable supply shortages. 
we have not invested as humankind for 40 years uh, sufficiently to maintain supplies. And while we are now, by we, particularly the Chinese in terms of overseas investments, are beginning to invest massively in natural resources, these investments are coming too little, too late. Too little, too late for a variety of reasons, one of which is the social take. Now that resources are beginning to be attractively priced, we're seeing a replay of the decade of the 1980s, where governments, sensing that there's something to steal, set about their basic business, which is to say they steal them or nationalize them, either directly or indirectly through tax. The second is regulation. An example would be the resolution deposit, a wonderful copper deposit in Arizona, in the U.S., wonderful location by a paved highway with power and a town full of copper miners. Couldn't get better. Average grade, one and a half percent. Average mine grade worldwide, half a percent. So three times the average worldwide grade. This deposit was discovered almost 30 years ago. It's been in permitting for 25 years with probably five more to go. It isn't enough just to discover a copper deposit. Remember, we haven't been looking for them for a long time. Then you have to permit it. Then you have to finance it. Then you have to build it. So assuming that we became rational right now in terms of our exploration for copper on a global basis, it's likely that we couldn't address the supply shortcomings except by disincenting demand through price for 10 years. The same is true perversely in the oil and gas business. The big thinkers of the world, the World Economic Forum, the Justin Trudeau's, uh, the Joe Bidens, that noted energy physicist, Greta Thornburg, would tell us that we're moving beyond the age of hydrocarbon consumption. Your listeners need to understand that our species has spent $4.8 trillion in 40 years on alternative energy, and we've reduced the market share of fossil fuels from 82% all the way down to 81%. Fossil fuel demand will be with us for a very long time. My suspicion is that peak oil demand will occur about 2065. Meanwhile, because the big thinkers of the world believe that we're going to transition or would like to believe that we're going to transition away from fossil fuels in 2030, they have put in place a circumstance where the oil industry on a global basis is underinvesting in productive capacity by about a billion dollars a day or $365 billion a year. What that means is that two or three years out, our ability to maintain current levels of production falls, while demand for oil, despite the wishes of the big thinkers, continues to increase. It's odd that, uh, I assume that you're in the United States, it's odd that uh, President Biden has suggested that the oil industry increases production at the same time that he says he's going to put them out of business in 2030. There is a dichotomy in that statement, which suggests that oil and gas is going to be a very good business for a very long time irrespective of the wishes of the president. Okay, so two two points on this one. To go back to your first sentence when you were explaining this one, you asked us to make an assumption that if there was going to be a recession over the next five years, first of all, my, my first question, I guess, is what do you think the likelihood of us making it five years is? And then second of all, what if it's not five years? What if it's tomorrow? I am assuming myself that we're going to have a recession within five years. I need to qualify that. Uh, Another guest of yours, Doug Casey, and I have correctly forecast 17 of the last three recessions. I'm always afraid. (laughs) I'm a long-term optimist, but I'm always short-term cautious. Uh, In my own assumptions, I assume that we're going to have a recession. A recession postpones rather than eliminates the supply shortage thesis that I've delivered to you. I've learned, too, that my own preferences as to timing don't matter. It's odd as I've aged that I, now that I have less time on earth, I'm much more patient with regards to my investments. While I wish they would perform by the next long weekend, I understand that the thesis that I'm involved in often takes five or six years to play out. I teach my own students to understand the difference between the phrase inevitable, meaning it has to happen, and eminent, which means it has to happen quickly. If you get yourself over that, you become more comfortable with questions where the answer begins with when, not if. 
I tell you that because if we don't have a recession, this thesis in terms of commodity prices and the equity prices of commodity producers takes off two years from now or three years from now. If it doesn't happen, it takes off five years or six years from now. My own understanding of the way investments work is particularly if I'm playing the macro thesis, which is to say the market beta, the biggest and the best natural resource producers. If I'm enjoying a five or 6% earned dividend yield, the time value of money in the consideration becomes less important. Whether something takes place three years from now or five years from now matters less if I'm collecting rent on my money. Matters less too, because the upside associated with natural resource stocks in a natural resource bull market is so explosive, the rents are so high that the net present value of the rents is still good <laughs> because the quantum increases that you see in the share prices in these circumstances is incredible. And I'm not suggesting, by the way, that any of your listeners or readers overinvest in natural resources. I'm only suggesting that natural resources and precious metals in most portfolios for the last 40 years have been minuscule and they need to be at least market weighted. Okay. Oh, you just left me with a good one. Okay. So market weighted against what? What we were talking about before with technology, with financial oh, he, sector here, against here's what? A, here's an example. Okay. Uh, right now, the market share of precious metals and precious metals related investments in the United States is one half of 1%, which is to say Americans' holdings of precious metals and precious metals-related assets represents one, one half of 1% of their savings and investment assets. The 40-year or four-decade mean was 2%. I'm not suggesting that gold will replace the US dollar. I'm suggesting that we're going to have a reversion to mean. I'm not suggesting that investors have 20% of their net worth in gold. But I am suggesting that they'd be silly at this point in time not to have two and a half or three percent. When you see gold on the cover of Business Week magazine or the New York Times, trim your position a little bit, <laughs> right? I I'm just suggesting that there is an inevitability around a rebound in precious metals and natural resources, that they go from a de minimis part of a portfolio to a representative part of a portfolio. My own suggestion is that solvent investors, uh, particularly solvent investors, who don't have other ways to defend themselves in this economy against the diminution of their living standards need to be as much as 20% involved in natural resources and precious metals, up from representations that right now probably are 3 or 4%. At the very least, if you drive an internal combustion engine, own enough oil stock that you can hedge, <laughs> hedge your gasoline consumption, you know, at the very, very, very least. Now, when you say the precious metals and the commodities, there are precious metals, which are commodities, which are used in manufacturing and right. used in consumption types of things. And then we have gold, where I suppose a certain amount of it goes towards jewelry and things like this. But percentage-wise, I think it's very low compared to, say, an industrial metal. Do you separate, say, gold out from other types of commodities as maybe more of a uh, an inflation hedge or a backstop for currencies or things like this? No, that's a great question. And the answer to what you say is yes. The primary function, I would argue, of gold is to act as a medium of exchange that's simultaneously a store of value, which is the classic definition of money. Gold is unusual. is isn't a promise to pay. It's not an IOU. It's payment. It's done. It's not a check that you have to cash. It's not a currency that somebody can produce too much of. And in that sense, it's a unique precious metal. Silver is more volatile than gold. So its utility as a store of value or as a medium of exchange is less. It's very volatility, like as an example, the volatility around Bitcoin means that somebody who transactions silver over time, unless their entire life is denominated in silver, doesn't know what they got paid for an item and doesn't know what they charged for an item. <laughs> Speculators like silver because after the precious metals narrative has been established, Silver tends to be more volatile, both to the upside and the downside, but it has less utility to somebody who owns the metal, as I do, for insurance purposes. The nice thing about silver, from an investor's point of view, is that a billion ounces a year gets used in various capacities. It goes to what I laughingly refer to as silver heaven. <laughs> Most of the gold that's ever get, been mined gets moved from a hole in the ground called a mine to a hole in the ground called a vault. <laughs> but silver goes away. 
And similarly, platinum and palladium go away. Yes, certain amounts are recycled. And as the price rises, more and more will be recycled. But your point is that you don't necessarily just look at the monetary aspects of silver or platinum and palladium. You have to look at the industrial utilities and particularly you have to look look at the technologies around utilization that will increase or decrease that utilization going forward. If you look back 30 years, most of the silver that was used was used in photo processing. Very little is used there now, but without silver, you wouldn't have a solar power industry. And increasingly without solar, you wouldn't have a germicide in sewage treatment and water treatment. So you you need to look at future-facing technologies that will either increase or reduce demand for silver. Similarly, with regards to platinum and palladium, catalysts, uh, autocatalysts, either in transportation or in refining and chemical production, are the primary industrial uses of platinum and palladium. So it's important in considering uh, those quasi-precious metals that you take into account the industrial and utility aspects of those commodities. Schooling for international families has always been a massive problem in the expat space. Families move around, change countries, and the kids never get to build solid relationships. Sometimes families even end up having to head home because there is not a viable option for education. Together with my business partner, Michael Strong, we have a goal to change this. At expatschool.io, we have world-class programs for children between the ages of 8 and 19. Our virtual school is a thriving community of happy, bright, and adventurous children. Go to expatschool.io to learn more about our program for your children or grandchildren. That's expatschool.io. Expatschool.io. So that takes care of the allocation. Let's go back to the timing because I think that we kind of left a little bit room there to explore because I think it is actually one of the most important ones. I think that we can agree that you are correct in your assertion of we need a lot more of these and we are completely underdeveloped in the world for not just mining them, but also processing them. But a timing aspect, because being right and being early, I mean, it makes it difficult still, let's say. Let me give you two quotes that your listeners will hate. Okay. (laughs) Both of them from Warren Buffett. Oh, the market is the perfect mechanism for transferring wealth from the impatient to the patient. <laughs> I mean, that's the classic peer. That's the classic Buffett quote. The second quote is harder to recognize. The ideal holding period is forever. When you sell, you run the chance of transferring a smart investment to a dumb one. My experience has been that the first wonder of the financial world is compounding. In the beginnings of a resource bull market, when the stocks are starting to rip, uninteresting things happen. It's a virtuous circle. The free cash flows in the company increase, and the company's access to capital increases. And if the company has in its inventory resources that weren't efficient to produce at formerly low prices, but are now efficient to produce because of higher prices, the competitors can't get those, and the company can access the capital to put them in production before competitors can overproduce the commodity. What that means is that when that glorious period starts, the compounding that accrues to resources, to resource companies and hence resource investors, is a return that's on steroids compared to other sectors. If you aren't looking, and by the way, most people who aren't experts shouldn't look at generating alpha relative to the resource sector, but rather looking at generating beta in the resource sector relative to other sectors, beginning their portfolios by owning the best companies that they possibly can, what you'll learn is that the share price gains that you can get in the Exxon Mobiles or the Rios or the BHPs of the world are almost penny stock returns in good markets. They're worth waiting for. But they also pay generous dividends, which means that the time value of money that you expose yourself to is obviated by the rent you get by way of dividends. Many people who are attracted to natural resources aren't attracted to the biggest and the best. They're speculators. I'm a speculator too. 
all of the money I now invest sensibly, I got by speculating wildly. And time is not necessarily on the side of the speculator, unless the speculator is very shrewd, very patient, and I dare say, very rich. But for most of the listeners to your program, uh, people for whom natural resources aren't a focus, but rather icing on the cake, they need to lengthen their horizons, not just in their resource investments, but in their real estate investments and other investments too. And they need to pay attention to investments where the time value of money argument can be obviated to some degree by economic rent, dividend or real estate rents. I think this is an extremely, extremely important point. And I also think that a lot of today's conversation that we're having is on the underlying asset. But at the end of the day, how you got access to that asset is also important because we can be completely right about oil and gas or precious metals or copper or anything like that and still pick the wrong company to be the pr provider of that commodity. And that's going to throw a complete monkey wrench into the program. Absolutely correct, uh, which is another reason why uh, most investors, at least when they begin to construct their natural resource portfolio, look at the biggest and the best companies. In a bull market, ironically, the best companies will underperform <laughs> the lame, the halt, and the blind because a market becomes narrative-driven. But over the course of a decade, uh, particularly in terms of risk-reward and also your own psychology, owning the biggest and the best and being content with market beta is a more sensible strategy, at least for people who have lives, who do other things than securities analysis with their time. Maybe I can make the point about time value of money better with listeners of yours who are real estate investors. You make your money in real estate, really, if you're involved in the beta by buying properties where you can increase your rents gradually over time with fixed price financing. So your cost of capital doesn't increase, but your return on capital employed does increase. <laughs> and it's the delta between the cost of capital and the return on capital employed and the increasing return on capital employed that allows you both the capital gain and the current income. If you think about extractive industries in the same fashion, if you think about buying natural resources in neighborhoods where the population or the affluence is increasing, if you think about buying natural resources where barriers to entry in real estate terms, zoning bylaws or permitting mean that existing assets become worth more, then you come to understand both the dynamic of the natural resource business and also the time that's required to profit. When I look back at my career, on a gross basis, almost every piece of real estate I ever sold was a mistake. <laughs> now, often I was able to do better things with the money than I would have been able to do had I left the money involved in that real estate. But the truth is that the power of compounding is jokingly the eighth wonder of the world, but the first wonder of the financial world. And compounding takes time. Well, I remember back just uh, on your real estate comments. I remember having Grant Cardone on who has, I don't know, 6,000 or 8,000 or 10,000 homes or something, apartment doors that he manages. And he said exactly the same thing. He purchased his first piece of real estate and he's never sold a piece of real estate since. He That was the only one he ever sold and everything else he's held it for decades. The other piece that I was thinking about as you were speaking and going back to our conversation about picking the right company, my friend Chris McIntosh, who I talk to on a regular basis, we were talking about uranium and going back and forth. Chris is a very smart guy, smarter than I am in pretty much every way, said, get rid of all of your uranium mining stocks and just make your life easier. Go for an ETF. And he gave me a couple of uranium ETFs. And his that, that was his suggestion to me because I'm not an active investor. I don't spend my life watching the markets and doing the correct analysis. My job is a consultant. I'm moving people overseas. Now, what's your opinion on ETFs in certain resource sectors? For many investors, owning an ETF is a good outcome if they have something else to do with their time. If you're really good at a certain thing, the highest and best use of your time is invested in your own business. So owning an ETF is not a bad thing. In the uranium sector, I know it well. I've been involved in it for a very long time. And I enjoy doing securities analysis on small companies. 
for me, an ETF is inefficient because the, inefi- the, the company, the ETF may own 40 companies, 25 of which I wouldn't invest my own money in. So the idea that the sponsor charges me a 50 basis point fee to invest in companies that I wouldn't invest in is silly. For a different investor, one who isn't willing to take the time, owning an ETF gives you an involvement in the sector without having to spend the time that I spend willingly and happily. In the uranium space, I would go further and say that probably 85% of the people who would like to invest in the space, by the way, everybody should. If you split your money 50% by owning the physical uranium trust, which is to say owning uranium itself, not stored in the basement, by the way, (laughs) but rather (laughs) certificated uranium. And the other half owning the uranium ETF, of course, my preference would be the Sprott ETF, since I'm a large Sprott shareholder. You can participate in a market that I think will be both dramatic, you'll notice I didn't say explosive, and reasonably timely without having to spend a lot of time in complex securities analysis. For myself, I might be tempted rather than owning the ETF to simply own the largest, well, the second largest and the highest quality uranium company in the world, which is Cameco on the New York Stock Exchange. Or if you could tolerate political risk, which I do, owning a combination of Cameco and Kazatomprom, the Kazakhstan-based producer that's the lowest cost and largest uranium producer in the world. I suggest that probably if you owned either Cameco or Cameco and Kazatomprom and the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, that you would participate in 85% of the beta in the space with no work uh, and enjoy a good dividend. If you don't want to be in Kazakhstan because of the political risk and you want broader exposure to the uranium juniors, by all means, look at the uranium ETF. So we've looked at the thesis, we've looked at the timeline, we've looked at the exposure and allocation, and we've looked at how to play it through a company through an ETF. What's missing from our recipe here? Most people don't own, and maybe they don't feel they need to, physical gold. And I believe for practical purposes, the people need to own physical gold. They need to regard it as insurance. I'm ironically a guy that owns a big shareholding in Sprott Inc. So theoretically, if the gold price goes up, I profit, right? But I still own a lot lot of physical gold. I own it because I'm 70 years old and it helps me sleep nights. I regard it as insurance. I'm in the odd position of owning a lot of something that I hope doesn't go up in price. I regard gold as liquidity, good liquidity, volatile liquidity to be sure. But when I look at the arithmetic around other forms of liquidity, uh, US dollar denominated debt as an example, I like those less and I like gold more. (laughs) And I think that people have been schooled by the last 40 years to be complacent with regards to lots of markets, but fiat denominated debt markets in particular. And I hope that your listeners, if they take nothing else out from this interview, begin to look more critically at asset classes that they've traditionally enjoyed, which I think will cause them to come to gold. If I might, the follow-on discussion to that, I think, is inflation. If you pay attention to the bleatings of the big thinkers, you will learn wrongly, I think, that inflation has been tamed, at least from a personal viewpoint. The big thinkers will tell you that the core CPI inflation rate in the United States is 2.8%. Let's examine that assertion. First of all, core inflation doesn't include food or fuel. As you can tell by looking at me, I like to eat and I fly and drive. So a measure of inflation that doesn't include food or fuel isn't very useful to me. But a much more complex problem with the CPI is it doesn't include the cost of government, tax. For most households, including I'm sure virtually all of those that listen to your program, Tax, government, direct and indirect, is a larger component of their household expense than shelter, energy, food, and transportation combined. An index that doesn't include 42% of the cost of running your household is not an index. I believe that the U.S. dollar purchasing power of my savings relative to the basket of goods and services I consume means that the value of my savings is declining by about 7% per annum. So if if you look at U.S. dollar-denominated debt, if you look at, let's say, the U.S. 10-year treasury, they're proposing to pay you, what, 3.75%, something like that? And they will, even if they have to print it. uh, They'll pay it. They're paying you 3.75% in a currency where your purchasing power is declining by 7% compounded. 
they are proposing to reduce your wealth as expressed by your purchasing power by three and a half percent a year by for 10 years. My friend Jim Grant calls that return-free risk. I, I think this is problematic. I'm not saying don't have U.S. dollar liquidity. Just understand that that liquidity is an option payment to have the liquidity to take advantage of a liquidity squeeze coming up. It's costing you money to save. If you begin to look at asset classes through that lens, through a more complete lens, you become a better sovereign investor. If you look beyond that headline rate of inflation at the quality of the credit and the probability that inflation comes down, I think you look, need to look at a few things. You need to look at quantitative easing. If you did it, it would be called counterfeiting. Regardless of your philosophical beliefs, the creation of unbacked currency makes the existing stock of unbacked currency worthless. The second is debt and deficits. At the federal level, and I'm speaking to your U.S. audience now, not an international audience, but at the U.S. level, the on-balance sheet liabilities of the U.S. government exceed $32 trillion or $26 trillion net of their counterfeiting, I mean their treasury holding. But the scarier thing is the off-balance sheet liabilities, the net present value, not the terminal value, but the net present value of unfunded entitlements at the federal level exceeds $100 trillion. That means at the federal level, before underfunded pensions, before state and local deficits, exceeds $120 trillion. And we propose to, to settle this debt with a budget that's in deficit $2 trillion a year. The probability that the federal government can do that without inflating away the net present value of those entitlement liabilities is zero. It's, I mean, how do you service $120 trillion in debt with a budget that's in deficit $2 trillion a year? Ain't gonna happen. So owning gold is a function of those three things, negative real interest rates after real inflation, counterfeiting, which is the way they deal with all problems, and debt and deficits. The upside is provided by the fact that nobody cares about gold, that the market share of precious metals as a component in total savings and investment assets in the United States is one half of 1%, down from a four-decade mean of 2%. My thesis to you is that negative real interest rates, debt and deficits, and counterfeiting, let's call it what it is, succeeds in, ri in raising demand for gold and precious metals-related assets from one-half of 1% 1 market share to 2%, which means a quadrupling in demand. That's the entire thesis. And I, I, I think if somebody is relatively patient and forward-thinking, that it's a bulletproof thesis. Now, you say that nobody cares about gold. Are you referring to the individual or retail or the bank level, or are we talking on the nation levels? Because if we look at countries like China and Russia, apparently they're stockpiling massive amounts of gold. So when you say that, what, are you, what do you mean? That is an exception. The truth is that there are groups in the world that have been forced to look at gold. Not because they want to, by the way, but rather because we weaponized the US dollar. And also because at a very large level, like China, they understand that there are holding costs in U.S. treasuries. Imagine generating a 300 basis point negative rate of return on $2 trillion in U.S. treasuries. I mean, what an ugly piece of arithmetic, particularly an ugly piece of arithmetic, when the debtor is using seniorage to assert his interests over yours on a world stage weaponizing the swift banking system, which, by the way, the U.S. doesn't own. In the case of Russia, taking $300 billion worth of U.S. treasuries and seizing them. I don't think that you're seeing the Chinese and the Iranians and the Russians and all these people going to gold because they have some fondness for the barbarous relic. I think they're doing it out of self-defense. I think what you hear in the popular press that says that the enemies of the U.S. dollar are in Tehran and Moscow and Beijing is wrong. The enemy of the U.S. dollars in Washington, plain and simple. We're forcing those countries to go towards gold. They don't trust each other any more than they trust us, which is to say the Chinese don't really want a bunch of rubles or a bunch of rupiah. So I think they're going to a system where, in terms of an exchange mechanism, that they are going to have to go into a de facto gold settlement system because they don't trust us and they don't trust each other.
But the beautiful thing about gold is you don't have to trust anybody. Receipt of payment in gold isn't a promise to pay. It's payment. All right. On the state level, I would love to understand, and maybe you can shine some light for me. How did China get themselves into this situation where they own trillions of dollars of treasury and allow themselves to be put in a situation where the U.S. can just turn on the printing press and just just make it up just out of nowhere? For 40 years, the U.S. dollar was the worst currency in the world except all the others. The Chinese had no alternative. The Chinese, too, had a strategy of selling goods in the United States which meant that they needed a yuan that was underpriced relative to the U.S. dollar and underpriced, by the way, relative to the peso, too. And so the Chinese saw it as being in their interest for 40 years during a period of declining interest rates to store surplus liquidity in the U.S. dollar, the deepest and most liquid money market in the world. While the Chinese beginning 20 years ago didn't trust us, they trusted us substantially more than they trusted anybody else. And two, they knew that with U.S. dollar-denominated assets, they could sell them. They had access to liquidity. If you went in fairly large securities markets around the world, yen markets, uh, real markets, even euro markets, you didn't have either the market depth, the market liquidity, or the market transparency that you had in U.S. dollars. Beginning 10 years ago, U.S. interest rates got so low in real terms, never mind nominal terms, and the prospect of U.S. inflation was so high, and the U.S. the US began to monetize the currency to extraterritorialize U.S. values on a global basis, that the Chinese had no choice but to decrease the value of their holdings in U.S. treasuries. Two, for the last 40 years, holding U.S. treasuries was always an interim step for the Chinese. The Chinese always intended to use their foreign exchange surpluses to finance the urbanization of China and to finance China's access to both markets and raw materials in what is now called One Belt, One Road, the initiative. So it was always in the Chinese interest to store the surplus liquidity that they gathered from being a low-cost manufacturer as an interim step to reinvest it elsewhere. We, I think, accelerated their redeployment by making the investment proposition less attractive to them with a negative real interest rate at the same time that we have used their financing to attempt to punish them in world markets. We left them no choice. Now, the U.S. has weaponized SWIFT and and financial markets. Do you think that China will or is weaponizing these treasuries that they own? I don't. I don't think that the I don't think that the Chinese want to destabilize the US market to the extent that they can't sell into it with manufactured goods. I think that you will see a very orderly transition out of US treasuries into other asset classes that the Chinese deem probably rightly to be higher quality assets and most likely natural resources, which kind of brings us full circle, I would say. They are certainly, certainly investing wholesale in resources. By the way, doing the same thing that the United States did in the 1950s and 1960s, using their foreign policy to support regimes on a global basis, maybe unsavory in certain circumstances like we did, in order to secure those markets for manufactured goods and also secure the sources of supply that made America so great. The Chinese want the same security of supply, and they're spending billions of dollars to get it. So before we wrap up, let's go back to the original investment thesis and kind of where the rubber hits the road with the inflation piece of the puzzle. We talked about gold. Now, holding gold, there is a cost to it, especially specifically speaking about physical gold, allocated, segregated gold. It doesn't pay the rent, as we were talking about with the natural resources stocks. What's your perspective on that? Insurance doesn't pay rent either, except a whole life policy. Gold helps me sleep nights and stay calm. Uh, but the other thing is, Mikhail, 49 years in investment markets, I assume that every 10 or 15 years, we're going to have a liquidity event like 2008. And nominal price levels in most asset classes will fall by half. 
That's what happens with a liquidity squeeze. I like to have liquidity. The aftermath of 2008-2009 was superb for me. I had the tools by way of cash, both U.S. dollars and gold, and I had the courage, <laughs> born of 25 years of experience, to take advantage of those that circumstance rather than being taken advantage of. And I consider gold to be good liquidity. I hold U.S. dollars, despite the fact that there's a holding cost. I hold gold, too. And I consider the foregone interest, the foregone rent, to be an option payment, to have the liquidity, which will give me the tools and I hope the courage to take advantage of a liquidity crisis rather than to be taken advantage of by a liquidity crisis. And do you see mining stocks, resource stocks as the other half or the other piece of protecting yourself from this inflation? I don't. I consider them to be a good investment. Okay. They are certainly better inflation hedges than most parts of your portfolio. Inflation raises dramatically the capital cost associated with adding new production, which means that existing producing assets become worth more. And traditionally during periods of inflation, the selling prices of raw materials have increased faster than the cost to produce them, which is to say the margin increases as the price goes up. So traditionally, they've acted as inflation hedges, but I wouldn't buy them solely as inflation hedges. I would buy them really as a way to play the fact that they're undervalued relative to other asset classes and the fact that demographics is on the side of the resource holder. In other words, I would pay more attention to the investment thesis than the inflation thesis. Taking the inflation thesis is icing on the cake. Okay. So then the logical question is, if someone's fear is inflation and they already have their allocation of gold in place, what would be the investment that they would be looking at? Gold traditionally is a superb inflation hedge. If somebody feels that they're full, certainly an intelligently constructed portfolio of moderately leveraged real estate with fixed rate financing. Sure. Not five-year financing, but rather 30-year financing is a fairly intelligent inflation hedge. Warren Buffett was able to show that investing in very high-quality industrial companies that had pricing power, where inflation reduced the ability of competitors to come into their space, worked well over time. During that whole period of the 1970s, when the equities markets as a whole went nowhere, Berkshire Hathaway was earning 25 to 30% compound internal rates of return by owning high quality companies that had purchasing power. <laughs> Not the nifty 50, but you know, rather, you know, high quality companies. And I absolutely believe that people will own an inflation hedge when they own natural resource-based businesses. But I wouldn't urge people to look at natural resource-based businesses purely from the point of view of an inflation hedge. Because you don't make choices based on the efficiency of the individual company that you choose if you only look at the icing on the cake rather than the cake itself. Amazing. Rick, what a phenomenal conversation. I really enjoyed this one. This is absolutely brilliant. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to follow your work, where can we send them? Thank you for the opportunity of a commercial. Anybody who owns natural resource stocks, can continue the conversation by going to my website, ruleinvestmentmedia.com. List your natural resource stocks, and I will personally rank them one to 10 and comment on individual issues where I think my comments might have value. There's absolutely no charge, absolutely no obligation. Secondly, you may know, Mikel, or you may not, that uh, I'm celebrating retirement by starting a new bank, Battle Bank, wonderful bank for expats, US domiciled accounts in 22 currencies, either money market or CDs. Also, the first chartered bank that I know of in the United States that will make loans against physical precious metals holdings in segregated accounts. If you, for some reason, are uncomfortable with your current banking relationship, if you think that you ought to be paid high rates of interest on your checking account, if you think that your IRA should be yours, that you should be able to buy rental residential real estate in your IRA, if you want a bank with a bank that makes loans against good collateral as opposed to specious collateral, that is to say a sanity-based bank, I invite your listeners when they come to Rural Investment Media in the question and comment section to write bank or else go to battlebank.com and join the wait list. It's worthy to note, Mikel, our last effort in this regard was Everbank, which you may or may not be familiar with. We started one of the first U.S.-based internet banks 
growing it from in the year 2000, zero assets to 2014, $28 billion in assets when we sold it to TIAA. Uh, this is really round two with the same group of people. Very, you know, a bank, I would describe it as a community bank, <laughs> but a community bank with a nationwide focus uh, for people who are interested in foreign investing, expatriation, precious metals, contrarian investing, uh, very much a libertarian's bank. Wow. I think we are going to have to have you back on the program to discuss that idea in depth at some point. I'm fascinated with it. As I say, I failed retirement after about four hours. uh, (laughs) And this is what saved me from retirement. Amazing. Rick, thank you very much for your time. I truly appreciate it. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.